Support for this NPR podcast comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Robin Hilton, and on this special edition of the program, we look back at the remarkable life and legacy of Aretha Franklin, who passed away Thursday at the age of 76. And this, of course, is Aretha Franklin from one of her gospel recordings, the song How I Got Over from uh, the 1972 album Amazing Grace. Uh, I am here with NPR Music's Ann Powers in Nashville. Hey, Ann. Hey, Robin. And here in Washington, D.C., I've got the head of NPR Music, Lauren Anke. Hey, Robin. And Lauren, prior to coming to NPR, you were at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where you produced a week-long tribute to Aretha Franklin back in 2011. That's right. I've been thinking about that a lot in the last couple of days. Yeah. So what we're doing on this edition of All Songs Considered, it kind of feels um, impossible to pull off, right? I mean, how do, you, how do you even begin to adequately explain how important Aretha Franklin was, how influential she was, and what just a monumental talent she was, really unlike any other. But what we want to do here is celebrate her life, uh, her work, and hopefully give people some entry points into what is really an unfathomably a deep catalog. Uh, she had a number of very distinct periods for her recordings and career, and maybe the best place to start is uh, in the beginning. Aretha was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and her father, C.L. Franklin, was a minister, and so they traveled around quite a lot and then ended up in Detroit. But he wasn't just a minister. He became one of the most well-known Baptist preachers in the U.S. as a result of an incredible recording career. His sermons were recorded and uh, were bestsellers across the country. But she learned to sing and play piano in the church. Her mother was a singer. Aretha talked about uh, what a great singer she was. So she was steeped in the, the Baptist church, and that's where she learned the key elements of her trade. Let's listen to a very early recording that she made uh, live at her father's church which remarkably she was only 14 years old when she made this recording. This is the song, Never Grow Old. say this about any period that she recorded in, but my gosh, she's only 14 years old here and the voice is already there. Yeah, I mean, that was her first recording. And uh, already you can hear not only the 
authority, but the depth of wisdom that Aretha communicated to us, I think, in that recording. Will Award of the Ward Singers, I shared this with Anne in the last couple of days. She wrote a great memoir about her career in the gospel circuit, and she described hearing Aretha as when Aretha was just a kid, and I don't mean to be too academic here, Robin, but if I could just read this quote, because <laughs> sure, it's been yeah. a, a real North Star for me. She said, no one could have taught Aretha how to reach back up to where heart joins soul, gather the treasures trembling there, and then song by song present her glory to the listening world. Here was this shy, unaffected child who could, without plan, yank the covers off folks' emotions. And, I'm, you know, right, right. when I hear that earliest recording, I think, man, it just must, it was all right there. And it was so, so effortless for her, too. When I, whenever I listen to any of her recordings, I think she never oversings. And it's not even like she's trying to carefully walk that line between oversinging and giving it, you know, going all in. But it was just like breathing to her. It was just there and that natural. I think that Aretha learning how to sing in her father's church during what we call the golden age of gospel you know, things she learned from that. She learned that to sing is to be in dialogue, you know, in dialogue with the people who are listening, whether it's a congregation or an audience or the vast unknown of those people who will listen to your recordings. To sing is to walk through a song and notice different things along the path and carry forth the story of your journey. Lauren, you mentioned her father and what a huge influence he was. Let's just talk about him for a minute because he was such a powerful force in her life and guiding her early on in in, um, both the church and in her music. He was a very well-known preacher at the time, and uh, let's just play a little bit from one of his sermons so you can hear the passion in his voice and even the musicality in it, too, I think. It is said that... uh, that was a man who had a poultry farm. Yes. yes. And that he raised chickens for the market. Yes. And uh, one day in one of his broods, he discovered a strange looking bird. Yes. That was very much unlike the other chickens on the yard. Yes. And uh, the man didn't pay too much attention, but he noticed as time went on, that uh, this strange-looking bird was unusual. He outgrew the other little chicken. Oh, Lord. And then one day a man who knew eagles, when he saw it, came along and saw that little eagle walking in the yard. And uh, he said to his friend, do you know that you have an eagle here? Oh, yeah. What you ought to do is build a cage. Yeah. <laughs> After a while, when he's a little older, he's going to get tired of the You know, uh, C.L. Franklin was also really important in the civil rights movement in Detroit. His Their home, uh, when she was growing up there, became a real center for African-American leaders. I mean, people like, of course, Dr. King, uh, but entertainers like Dinah Washington and Sam Cooke were coming through Reverend Franklin's house. And so Aretha got also a up-close view of the center of African-American political, cultural, artistic thought as a very young girl. I'm so glad you mentioned Sam Cooke, Lauren, because, um, you know, Aretha definitely 
was touched by the divine and touched by the ways of the church from her teenage years. But of course, she was also touched by glamour and by pop. And, you know, Sam Cooke, another amazing crossover artist between the worlds of gospel and R&B, soul music. And at the same time she was in church, she was listening to the radio and she was hearing doo-wop music and hearing Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker. And it's that mix. It's that mix of the sacred and the secular that made Aretha who she was. Let's hear Aretha Franklin herself talk about what it was like meeting Sam Cooke for the first time. This is from an interview she did in 1999 with Fresh Air and Terry Gross. Uh, Sam and I met at uh, a Sunday evening program that we had at our church uh, back in the early 50s. And uh, I was sitting there waiting for the program to start after church. And I just happened to look back over my shoulder and I saw this group of people coming down the aisle, and oh my God, the man that was leading them, Sam and his brother Elsie, and these uh, guys were really super sharp. They had on beautiful blue and navy blue and brown trench coats, and I had never seen anyone quite as attractive, uh, not a male as attractive as Sam was. Um, and so prior to the program, my soul was kind of being stirred uh, in another way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, exactly. she, she knew and met Sam Cooke in the 1950s. And then, you know, eventually she goes on to sign with Columbia Records. And I was really surprised that she didn't, you know, she was from Detroit. and She didn't sign with Motown. Uh, but she ended up going, moving to New York and signing with Columbia. I think that's the reflection of... Her father, I mean, C.L. Franklin wanted her to go big, and Motown in 1959, 1960 was not big. It was a local label. It was having some initial success, but it wasn't what we now think of as Motown, right? So the fact that we're going to New York and we're going to Columbia, and, and she records with the great John Hammond, I think is reflective of the ambitions they had for her. Here's Aretha Franklin again in the Fresh Air interview talking about uh, her conversation with her father and their decision to go with Columbia Records. My dad and I had talked about it. We knew that Columbia was a worldwide label, and uh, I think the feeling probably was that um, the promotion would be better than, say, a Motown or the distribution and the promotion and so on. And so we just kind of maintain that feeling that Columbia were, and other major record labels were the people that we wanted to talk to. It's like they knew what they had yeah. and they wanted to swing big. I always think of the parallel right at that exact moment with Bob Dylan, who also comes to New York and also signs with Columbia under John Hammond and then experiences so much in the village and really widens his own catalog of American music. I mean, Aretha comes to the, the heart of things to make it. The first record she ended up releasing from Columbia was Aretha with the Ray Bryant combo. Let's listen to a cut from it called Today I Sing the Blues. Without a word of warning The blues walked in this morning And circled around My lonely Tell 
She's perfectly behind that beat and in full control of that song. It's really sexy. It doesn't feel like somebody's first record to me. Oh, yeah. You know, um, just just utter control, and it feels like it could go on for half an hour, and we would be just fine with it. Sultry. You know, also for me, I'll say, Robin, as a young music geek reading about music history, this whole period of Aretha Columbia was not taken very seriously by the rock critics and rock historians that I was reading, you know? Mm -hmm. It was like, it all started in 67, and so going back through this Columbia period has been really a joyful, fun experience because there's so much great music. Let's do another pick from her Columbia years. This is a song that uh, you picked, and uh, the song is called Skylark. to give credit to my friend the writer Elijah Wald for um, putting that up on social media and saying you know hey (laughs) let's not forget those Columbia sessions because there's some insanely great singing and I think that that recording really also shows us Aretha's love for jazz, connection to jazz, and, you know, absolute hipness. (laughs) You've both talked about how uh, her work during the Columbia years maybe isn't as revered or as respected as some of her later work, and it was in 1967 her contract ran out with Columbia. She switches to Atlantic Records, and suddenly she starts having some of the biggest hits of her life. Yeah, she had a new mentor, Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records, He did persuade her to fly to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where there's a recording studio called Fame. And she went into the studio to work with some of the greatest session people who've ever lived. 
known as the Swampers, and um, it, it changed everything. Lauren, maybe you want to talk a little bit about that story. Yeah, I think Wexler understood that Aretha's piano playing was crucial, and they went down to record the first record on Atlantic. They actually ended up only recording one song, but it was I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. But there was a fight after the session, the first session between Aretha's husband at the time, Ted White, and Rick Hall, who ran fame. And that was fueled by liquor and racism and tempers and things erupted and Aretha and Ted left and Wexler had to figure out what to do next. And they they did more recording in New York. And the record they ended up with was in fact called I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Uh, it included uh, probably her most requested song of all time, certainly one of her biggest, if not the biggest, uh, and that's the song Respect. And here's Aretha talking about how she came to record that one, a song that was uh, originally written and recorded by Otis Redding. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and um, piano by the window, watching the cars go by. And uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It was. It really was cliche. And uh, some of the girls were saying that to uh, the fellas, like, sock it to me in this way or sock it to me in that way. Uh, nothing sexual, and it's not sexual. It was non-sexual, just uh, a cliche line. But anyway, um, Laugh-In picked it up, and it just kind of perpetuated itself and went on from there.
Well, it's funny when Aretha talked about respect and the phrase "sock it to me." She didn't want people to think it was sexual. <laughs> but what I would, what I love about this record, and there's so many things to love about it, is the uh, back and forth between Aretha and her sisters, Irma and Carolyn. They were so crucial to her sound, collaborators in every way. And so when people say respect is a feminist anthem. Yeah, I suppose. But it's not a feminist anthem with a capital A the way that, say, I Am Woman by Helen Reddy (laughs) is. It is just about how badass women can be, especially when they're together. Let's play another song from I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, uh, the track Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. And Lauren, maybe you can set this one up for us. This track, Do Right Woman, is another example of what Anne just described. It's Aretha and her sisters, and they make this magic happen in the studio, and you can feel their connection and their love and their skill and their badassery. After they left fame, they knew I Never Loved a Man was a killer track, but they didn't have a B-side, and so Jerry Wexler finally got her and went into the studio in New York with her sisters and recorded Do Right, so they had a B-side, and it was a smash. It's a great track. Take me to heart And I'll always love you And nobody Can make me do wrong Take me for granted Leaving talking a lot about how you know what made Aretha but I also think we have to think about the world Aretha made and um, a song like Do Right Woman you hear things in it that echo through the ages everything springs from this ground one of the other things you hear on Do Right is uh, her piano playing and of course everyone knows that she was a phenomenal singer but she was also a gifted pianist let's hear another cut from I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You Dr. Feelgood where you can really hear her piano playing
Lauren and I just looked at each other, Anne, and we both are like chills just listening. Just the dynamics, the the, mm-hmm. the way she makes that piano sing and punctuates and pulls back. I mean, she controls it just as effortlessly as she does her own voice. Yeah, Anne so said it true. before. I mean, she is a brilliant pianist, and she just got better and better over the course of her career. I would encourage listeners to get on YouTube and watch her do this in 1968 live. It is so masterful and so sexy. Uh, the all the ad-libbing around what Dr. Feelgood's capable of. She doesn't have time to hang around <laughs> with the girls right now. She's a little busy. Just one of her most fun tracks. For as much as she covered other people's work and brought life to those songs, she did write some of her own work as well. Let's listen to another song that she recorded during her Atlantic years. Uh, this is from 1971, the album To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. The song is called Daydreaming. write a ton of songs that she recorded but the ones she did write they hung together in this really beautiful way there's a lightness to her songwriting there's there's a flow to it that's really graceful and i picked this song which is from one of her absolutely greatest albums which is called young gifted and black came out in 1972 you know it's experimental in a way it's just part of that my favorite moment in american popular music lately which is early 70s eclecticism jumping genres and we're crossing from soul to jazz to almost like a psychedelic feeling there is a fantastic collection of rare recordings from this period from the early 70s that came out a while back called rare and unreleased recordings from the golden rain of the Queen of Soul, and there are some there are some cuts on this collection that really offer this incredible glimpse uh, into what it was like to be in the studio with Aretha Franklin. Here she is um, recording the song "You're All I Need to Get By." Three. 
She uh, she interrupts. It's like she interrupts herself and uh, inserts that other little melodic rhythm. She walks it up. I mean that song, the incredible version by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell in 1968, one of Motown's greatest moments. Aretha records it as a add-on to a greatest hits record. But I love how she just gets in the core of that song. You know, we know it as having this big arrangement and strings, and there she is with her. Sister Carolyn, at the very least in the background there, just on the piano, moving through the core of that song and just taking it as her own and adding. She makes a little reference to R-E-S-P-E-C-T in there, but I just love hearing her at work. So she had the Columbia years, the, the period where she recorded for Columbia Records, and she has this incredible run with Atlantic Records where she has these you know, monumental hits. And then you start getting into the late 70s and early 80s, and her music isn't as popular, and she's not finding the audience she once had. What started happening? What was going on then? I mean, so many soul and R&B singers hit a similar place, disco was so dominant in the late 70s and it wasn't necessarily music that was driven by singers in the way that an earlier period of soul had been and I think she was trying to figure out where is the right place for me but there's a lot of albums throughout that period that have some great tracks but I think it was just the era she came in on versus kind of what was hot and new and how's she going to fit. I've been listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell from this similar time and loving those records and uh, you know just let your ears get used to the synth sounds <laughs> which was so new at the time right so Aretha's working with people like Luther Vandross doing amazing to me amazing work with him and she he's she's having hits you know she is having success and and figuring out ways to be relevant and and I think I personally probably scorned this music at a certain point because I didn't think it would, you know, it was as real or as authentic mm. or whatever. But um, I'm over that. I can hear great things in this music. Yeah, too. it's great when you can hear stuff out of its original time, right? How you experienced it in that way. Um, and you wanted to play a song from a 1983 album called "Get It Right." Uh, this is the title track.
So we're making quite a leap here. The last thing we heard from her was, you're all I need to get by. <laughs> and and, and we're, we're now hearing this something that seems almost over the top compared to that. What, what do you hear in this music now, Anne? Well, first of all, I hear a super funky bass line from Marcus Miller, who co-wrote this song with Luther Vandross. And um, I just hear Aretha still getting down and, and you know, bringing us onto the dance floor. And I think another thing I hear in this song is... Uh, a connection to her goddaughter and another one of our greatest singers and someone we lost far too soon, Whitney Houston. So, you know, here's Aretha moving into the 80s, into the cocaine and satin 80s. But, you know, that's the mood. It's post-disco, like Lauren said. And she owns it. And, you know, I think Freeway of Love, which followed that, was an amazing record. And the Who's Who and Who album was a huge hit, and she also claimed video at that moment, the the Freeway of Love video. She was a, a star on video, and there was Clarence Clemens in a convertible playing sax. You know, <laughs> she was suddenly at the center of this visual culture, too, which is really exciting. So as we get into the 90s and 2000s with Aretha Franklin, she starts doing more collaborations. Let's listen to one that she did in 1998 with Lauryn Hill. Uh, This is a song called A Rose is Still a Rose, the title track uh, from a 1998 album. Listen, dear, I realize that you've been hurt deeply because I've been there. But regardless to who, what, why, when, and where, we're all precious in his sight. And a rose is still and always will be a rose. What a great drop on this one. Um, a Rose is Still a Rose. Lauren, you and you and Anne both picked this song. Why don't you tell me why this was on your list? The idea of the two of them together was so powerful when it, that song came out, and I think it just worked so beautifully. Lauren Hill was as hip as she could be at that moment, right? And for the two, for her to be on the Aretha record, I think set Aretha in, in front of a whole new audience. So I love it for musical reasons and symbolic reasons, I think, about the two of them coming together. Every artist to follow has 
paid homage to the queen. Aretha is everywhere. She will always be everywhere. I, I, I can't even think of American music without her influence. So though I'm, I'm very sad that we've lost her as a presence in, in our world, uh, I'm not heartbroken. She gave us so much. And uh, we'll never stop enjoying the fruits of her labors. When an icon dies, especially, we have the opportunity to hear stuff anew because over the years they become Aretha, Diva, it's one thing. It's not complex. And I think this is a really great moment to just listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's listen to one more song then before we go. This will be one we can go out on. uh, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Uh, You've Got a Friend. Robin, I, I chose this one for us to go on and because I think it does everything that Aretha does. Uh, it gives us every side of her genius. Uh, it's from Amazing Grace. And this song blends the sacred and the secular in literal terms. You know, you have the greatest gospel hymn of the 20th century, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, written by Thomas A. Dorsey, blended with one of the greatest songs of uh, the rock era, Carol King's You've Got a Friend. And she reminds us how the divine is intimate and the intimate is spiritual. The uh, connection we have to whatever we believe in, whatever we consider our our Lord, our divine presence is so similar as to be almost the same as the connection we have with a loved one. You know, we're all waxing eloquent about Aretha in this moment of her passing, and we're you know, lifting our voices to the heavens and, and praising her, her glorious divinity and, and the exceptional quality of her art. But I think that Aretha would want us to remember that even exceptional moments happen in the everyday. And we are, we are always here on earth, even when uh, we're encountering the divine. And, and to me, this performance of You've Got a Friend and Precious Lord Take My Hand absolutely captures that essential aspect of Aretha Franklin's art, which is about loving the moment. Loving the moment you make the art, loving the moment you experience the art, and even when it's hard, even when it just feels ordinary, it's still the best thing we'll ever have. Uh, Ann Powers in Nashville, thanks so much for, for doing this. Thank you so much. It really means a lot that we got to talk about Aretha. And Lauren, thank you. Thank you both. For NPR Music and All Songs Considered, I'm Robin Hilton. You need some love and care. Ain't nothing 